For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. Hi, and welcome to The Rock Podcast. This morning, our guest speaker is Bob Cole. Bob is a gifted songwriter, pastor, and personal friend to The Rock. He shares with us from Psalm 37, verses 1 through 11, and gives us God's recipe for handling worry. Let's join Bob now with a message entitled, Ingredients for a Peaceful Heart. Okay, strap yourselves in. Should there be a loss of cabin pressure, oxygen masks will descend in front of you. We got a lot of ground to cover today. Uh, Let's pray. Lord, we are here because we're hungry. We are here because you are the only one who can feed that hunger that we have in our hearts. I thank you for setting this up, Lord, that I could uh, be here to say these words that I could have spent the last few weeks studying these words. I needed them. So this is at your request, Lord, and I pray that our hearts would be open. You would give each of us um, the portion that you have for us. We are willing to be recalibrated if necessary. We freely admit we have really lousy thinking habits. So Lord, wash our brains today. Thank you for your word. I love this passage of scripture. Lord, you and I both know this has changed my life. It has radically transformed me, and it's bigger than I am. So we ask the Holy Spirit to anoint the hearers and the teacher as well, that all glory might go to you. In Christ's name, amen. Turn to Psalm 37. You will probably want to underline or write some notes in your margins, I hope. If you didn't bring a Bible, shame on you. But we are going to put the text up here. Um, this is an instructional psalm of David. It's 40 verses long, and I have no intention of doing the whole psalm. But embedded in this psalm that is rich with fabulous, underlinable, highlightable scriptures written by somebody who ought to know. You know, somebody tells me to trust God. First thing I want to know is, have they actually done it? Have they actually lived it out? Has it ever been tested? Are they just one of those church people that throws cliches at you? So in all my Bibles, under Psalm 37, considering the content, I always write a Psalm of David, and he ought to know. (laughs) It's an instructional Psalm. It's It's the distillation of things that David himself didn't always know. He learned it the same way you and I are going to learn it, and that's by experiencing it. But we get the advantage because we know his story. We have the historical record. We have the scripture. Long after I'm gone, back up on my island in the upper left-hand corner, or in heaven, you're going to still have the Bible. When I first read this, I could not believe how beautifully these first 11 verses laid out in, in fact, the more I studied it, and, more, and I'm a word guy, so I looked up every single word. And the more I looked at it, and I looked at the verb tenses and everything, I realized it wasn't just a beautifully laid out 
system to tell you what not to think, how not to react, and then why not to do that, and then what to do instead. Works so perfectly for my brain and a whole bunch of people that I'm related to down here. <laughs> I realized that it was also sequential. So if we can look at it that way, I promise you God will speak something to your heart. Not because I'm a good teacher, because I'm not. But he was the one that gave me this to teach this morning. When Ross told me, uh, asked me to come down here and, uh, and teach, last time he did that, within 30 seconds, the Lord gave me what he wanted me to speak in, and that just turned out fabulous. This time, just to keep me on my toes, it took about two weeks of waiting and even fasting before the Lord. So I'm positive this is what he wants to say. And for somebody, this, this is going to change your life today like it did for me. And if you're in out-of-control situation, if you're in a situation where it looks like somebody who is not praying about it is running your life or driving your bus, this is gonna, it's going to bless you because this is, what, this is how God saved my sanity. This very passage. And if you don't need it now, you might need it tomorrow. So hang on to it. Take it in. These are God's words written by David was a prophet, not just the king. He was not a straight-A student, which I find tremendously comforting. <laughs> he, he made some huge mistakes that he paid for. But the best endorsement on David was from God, when God said, this is a guy after my heart. Now, if David's publicity agent said that, or David's grandma said that, wouldn't mean as much. The God who knew the whole story said, listen to this guy. He is a man after my heart. That's what I want to be. I'm going to read it through. Who knows, in the second service, I may not take as long from the introduction, but I want us to look at it in its context, and then we're going to just look at all of the key words. There are over 12 imperative verbs in here, which is to say commands, okay? I promise you, in the context, you're going to look at some of these commands and you're going to say, I can't do that. And you'd be right. My favorite quote by Andrew Murray on this subject is, God's commands are God's enablings. God will never command you to do something but what he is willing and able to enable you to do it. So don't don't get hung up on the, I can't do that. You don't know what I'm going through. You're not going through anything as any harder than what David was going through when he wrote these words. So I'm going to read the first 11 verses of Psalm 37. Anytime you see something repeated, take note, because God knows we leak. So if he repeats something like two or three times, take note, because he knows you're going to need to hear it more than once. So the first phrase, do not fret, is repeated three times in these 11 verses. So I would say that qualifies as a key word, right? Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for, I love that word for, it's the same as saying because. I love because. (laughs) I love it when God gives me a reason. Here's the reason not to fret. Because they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither, as the green herb. What? Remember, this is a sequence. Trust in the Lord and do good. The verb in Hebrew means keep doing good. Don't stop the good you're doing. 
And it's causative. That statement is causative um, force in Hebrew, which means in my Amplified Bible, it puts the word, so shall you dwell. So let's read it that way. Trust in the Lord and do good, and so shall you dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Can't believe how many Christians know that one. It may not mean what you think it means. Here's the most important word I believe in the Christian life of faith. It's the word commit. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. That has to do with vindication, which was a big deal to David. Rest in the Lord. Some of the translations say, be still and rest. Fat Hebrew word. And wait patiently for him. Here's do not fret again because of him who succeeds in his way or prospers in his way because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. There's third time. It only causes harm. Learn that the hard way. Because, for, evildoers shall be cut off, but, by contrast, those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. Some translations say they shall inherit the land or they shall possess the land. Both statements are faithful to the Hebrew. That's repeated about eight times in this psalm. That qualifies as a key phrase, I would think. For yet a little while and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look for his place, but it shall be no more. But, by contrast, the meek shall inherit the earth. Does that sound familiar? Jesus quoted that. And they shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. I forgot to have um, Adam underline the word abundance. Underline that word because it's, that word in the Bible, it means more than enough. So I titled this study, Ingredients for a Peaceful Heart in Out-of-Control Situations. And I've been there. I've been there when it looked like your worst nightmare was coming true, and it couldn't possibly get worse, and then it got worse. And then it just kept getting worse. And I dove into this passage of Scripture over and over and over. And when I thought I understood what the words meant, I looked them up just in case I didn't. And I found out sometimes I didn't. And then when I tried to implement these 12 imperative verbs, I discovered you can't do this under certain circumstances without help. And God said, well, I knew that. I never said you had to do it by yourself. One of my friends, I won't tell you her name, but I'm going to tell you her password. (laughs) So if you're listening to this, it's not you. Her password is ask. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we don't take it to the Lord. We don't talk to him. So let's look at this. I would say... 
Fret is a key word, wouldn't you? It appears three times. So unless you're a guitar player, <laughs> probably fret is not part of your normal vocabulary. I'll give you the, I'm going to give you the Hebrew words because I would love it. It would bless my heart if you would look these words up and check me out. And if I'm lying to you, call fire down from heaven on me, okay? Here's the Hebrew word. It's chara, C-H-A-R-A-H, chara. C-H-A-R-A-H, chara. Not hurrah, chara. But here's, it is very closely akin to our word worry. Oh, Santa. It's close. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Give your five bucks later. Closely related to our word worry, but you gotta, this is a power, I'm a word guy, and this is a powerful word. If you looked up fret in the old Oxford Dictionary, it would have my Facebook profile picture right next to it, because I was, that was my major in college. I was an expert fretter, not so much anymore. Here's what it means. It means to fume or burn inside with anxiety with the growing compulsion to act. Sound familiar to some of you? You know what it is? It's not just worry. It's worry on steroids. It's, it's, it's Bluto and the Popeye cartoons when his face starts turning red and smoke starts coming out of his ears. It's that you can't just sit there. You've got to do something. Somebody's got to do something. Let me tell you, I've learned this the hard way. When you're thinking that way about somebody who looks like they're driving your bus, or it looks like the evil guys are winning, as it often does in the Bible, guess who's fanning that flame? You can't just sit there. You've got to do something. Guess who's fanning that flame? Guess who's sharpening the sword that's about to be handed to you so you can go out and defend yourself? It's your enemy. Thank That was a rhetorical question, dear. Thank you. <laughs> That's what happens when you're trying to teach intelligent people. Do not fret. I love it that it tells me why to not fret. When, uh, about over evildoers, and that later it says when, the, when they're winning. When, they, when their plans that you've been praying would not succeed, when those plans succeed and God doesn't seem to lift a finger to stop it, it tells us the reason why to not fret. Over in verses 8 and 9, it says, because it only leads to harm. You seize the helm and you might wreck the whole ship. And it tells us here that the reason in verses 2 and 3, it tells, or verses 1 and 2, it tells us the reason not to fret, don't fume, don't burn inside, is because their success is only temporary. I'm not going to say anything about the election. But the first thing I thought was, you know, there's a bunch of people that are going to really need to hear this Bible study. <laughs> Do you know that if you put a nickel close enough to your eye, it'll blot out the sun? It will blot out the sun. It is so important in our lives to have the God view of things. And the more you obsess on something and the more you stare at it, I promise you it'll get bigger and bigger and bigger to where pretty soon it's bigger than God. Been there, done that. I'm an expert at doing that. I don't do that so much anymore. 
In Psalm 73, which is easy to remember because it's dyslexic version of 37, Asaph deals with the same issue of the apparent inconsistency of righteous people suffering, doing the right thing, and they're suffering, and then Joe, wicked guy over here, who doesn't really give a rip what God thinks, he's prospering. He's doing just fine, thank you. He feels no guilt, no remorse. And, and Asaph took it a step farther than David, and he said, you know, when I, when I looked at that really close, I thought it's not worth it to do what's right. The people who aren't doing what's right seem to have no problems, and I've had nothing but resistance since day one I stepped out to do God's will. Interestingly, they both found the same solution to that line of thinking, and it was to take the God view. Don't look at what's happening right now in front of your eyes. This is not the whole story. For you, Mr. Righteous, Ms. Righteous, and for Mr. Wicked, it's not all about here. It's not all about now. Everything can change and will change from what you see right now. And often we are, Americans aren't very good at this, are we? If we don't see instantaneous results, we just assume God isn't doing anything. And God just is not in a hurry. Sorry to tell you that. He doesn't have to be. I have offered him my watch and my, my handy 15-page timetable. He doesn't need them. So I got to get going. I'm, uh... Is that telling me how long I've gone? Or how? OK. <laughs> Pressure. So don't fret. Don't fume. Don't fret, don't burn inside. If your hand starts reaching for the steering wheel, do that. Because that's what your enemy wants you to do, is seize the helm. And your flesh isn't going to fix anybody else's flesh. You have a flesh fight, guess who wins? Flesh. Ask me how I know that. Thank you. That was another rhetorical question. <laughs> Someone needs to explain the word rhetorical. And also, don't be envious, because that is also a trap. You start thinking, well, heck, why should I take the hard road? Look at them. They don't care. Everything's working out fine for them. And I tell you, that's another trap. And the devil re is really good at what he does. Every single person that made a decision to obey God under pressure has met with resistance. If there's no resistance, you're not doing it right. In fact, I have been pounded for two weeks. And so I started getting excited after a while. I've been around long enough to thought, wow, this must be going to be really good. Somebody must really need this because the devil is just in my face. So... Has the devil been in your face, only you didn't know it was him? Take a deep whiff. Smell any brimstone? Look around. See any, see any sizzling footprints coming in and out of your front door? This could bust him, this whole thing. Okay, here's the sequence. Well, I wanted to read verse 2. The reason to not fret or be envious is they're going to soon be cut down. Everybody who's ever driven through the Petaluma Hills understands that when it looks nice and green, just wait a little while, and it won't be nice and green. It will be brown. 
It's a perfect example for David to use in an arid region like Israel, where all of the tours I've taken to Israel, we all, we all go in February, early March, and there's wildflowers all over the hills, and it's verdant and green. Everybody thinks, oh, I could live here. And I thought, well, you know, but like 10 months out of the year, it's really dry and really brown, and there's no chlorophyll to be seen. Perfect example to take the long view, and you're going to realize you're going to still be around, Mr. Miss serving and trusting God, when all of the people that look like the prospering uh, driving their BMWs and whatever. Sorry if you drive a BMW. That doesn't mean you're wicked. It's just, I'm just jealous, that's all. I got in tons of trouble when I had one, so God protected me. So here's a wonderful sequence. That's what you don't do. Now it's going to tell you what to do instead. This is when I started re feeling like I had bad thinking habits that I didn't even realize. How do we know we have bad thinking habits? How do we know what the correct way to think is? That's one of the reasons we study the Bible. We get the God view, and we look at that, and we go, oh, you know that thing you said don't do? I do that. You know that thing you said do? I don't do that. Okay, so I love this sequence. Trust in the Lord and do good. I had them underline those first uh, two verbs. Trust in the Lord. That reminds you of a scripture, Proverbs 3, 5, which used to be my least favorite scripture in the whole Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean to your own understanding. You know why I hated that verse? Because that means God's going to do stuff I don't understand. I hate that. I remember saying, look, I would be fine with this whole out-of-control thing, Lord, if you would just give me some explanations, help me to understand. You know what he said to me? He knows me so well. He said, son, you can have peace right now, whether or not you understand what I'm doing. But if you're going to wait to have peace until you understand this is going to be a bumpy ride. If you'll just trust me, if you will refuse to fall into that fret trap, you can have peace right now. Just like verse 11 says, you're going to have more peace than you know what to do with, and I don't have to change any of your circumstances for that to happen. But if you're going to wait until you figure everything out to have peace, it's going to be a very bumpy ride. So I'll just pass that on to you. Trust in the Lord and do good. Trust in the Lord. Isn't it weird? We think we're trusting in the Lord, but often we're trusting in what we think he's going to do. And when he doesn't do it, we think he failed. And you know what? God just says, Flat out in Isaiah 55, my ways aren't your ways. Sorry. They're better. I don't think the way you think. I don't do things the way you think. So just trust me. I got obsessed with a guy who caused me about 25 years worth of horrible problems with his lies. Went on for about 25 years until he was exposed. And he looked bigger than God to me. And God didn't seem to be trying to stop him at all. And it, it, it seriously affected my life. I thought it was going to ruin my life to the point that I didn't think I wanted to live anymore. That's so silly. He was bigger than God. 
And I remember God trying to comfort me one night, laying on my bedroom in my island. And I said, Lord, I don't trust him. I don't trust him. I don't trust him. And in that wonderful way, God has calming me down. He said, I am not asking you to trust him. I'm asking you to trust me more than you don't trust him. Because the Lord said, right now, what's controlling your life is you're not trusting him. That's it. That's what's controlling your life. It's not that you trust me. He's bigger than me. And I did not realize that. So, words important, aren't they? Trust in the Lord. More than you don't trust that person that seems so big to you and so in control. If they are in control, it's only temporary and it's still subservient to God's plan for you and for me. And do good. Keep doing good. It's a continuous action verb idea. All the devil wants you to do is stop the good that you're doing. Tell you what happens to me. When I get discouraged or when somebody's trying to punch my lights out or pull my plug, the thought runs through my head, well, what's the point? It's not working anyway. Take a deep whiff when you start thinking the good that you're doing as a parent, as a grandparent, as an employee, the good that you're doing as a minister isn't working because you don't seem to see the response that you want. You know what? That's a lie straight from the pit of hell. If you're doing what God told you to do, it's working. So don't stop. Trust in the Lord and do good. I'm going to read you two verses that talk about the keep doing good, and I'll just uh, give you the reference and you can look it up if you want to write the reference down. Galatians 6, 9 is one of my faves. It says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. Guess what your enemy wants you to do? Give up. You betcha. You guys are sharp. Second one is 1 Peter 4, 19. It just fits so well into Psalm 37 and David's life. You wonder if Peter had studied this psalm a bunch of times before he wrote it. 1 Peter 4.19 says, Therefore, those who are ill-treated and suffer in accordance with the will of God must continue to do right and commit their souls for safekeeping to their faithful creator. Don't stop the good that you're doing. You know what? The devil only has about three plays in his playbook. He doesn't need any more because they work. They just work so well. All he has to do is throw a few lies at those of us that are easily discouraged, and we stop. This is really true of prayer. This just popped into my head. Somebody needs this. Maybe it's me. Do you ever feel like, what's the point of praying? It's not working just not true. Just because you can't see it working doesn't mean it's not working. By the way, prayer doesn't work. It's God that works. The prayer is just what plugs us into him. Prayer essentially has no power. The power is in the one we're praying to. And he loves to do things you can't see beneath the surface. It's like the devil is sitting there in his foxhole, and he's out of bullets, so he just gets on his bullhorn and he says, you call yourself a Christian? You couldn't hit the broadside of a barn with a bazooka. 
you know, you're, you're not hitting me, you're not hitting me. And we go, oh, okay. I never was very good at this whole prayer thing. And we just put our rifles down. And he only told you that because he's out of bullets. And you're about to win. So trust in the Lord, keep doing the good that you're doing. And it has causative force in Hebrew which means that it directly is causing what's being said next. So my Amplified Bible says, and so shall you dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. I'll give you the Hebrew word for dwell. It's one of, there's some fabulous Hebrew words that are translated dwell. This one is shachan, S-H-A-C-H-A-N, Here's what it means. It means to settle down and be at rest. And in the context, this is when the bad guys are winning. This is when everything looks out of control. If you will trust in God and keep doing the good that you're doing, you're going to be able to snooze. You're going to be able to rest. Done it so wrong for so long, I really noticed the difference in doing it right. You know, sheep cannot eat or sleep if there are predators circling. They'll starve to death. They can't eat until they feel safe. And that's the word that this shepherd who wrote this psalm used that phrase for sheep eating, sleeping, totally carefree, not worried about the big bad wolf. He said, when you are trusting the Lord and doing good, so shall you dwell. My NIV, which I hate in the Psalms, I don't get where they get their verb tenses, it's all messed up, but there's one phrase in Psalm 37 the NIV I really like, and it says, uh, so shall you enjoy safe pasture. Don't know how they get that from the Hebrew, except that sheep can't rest if they sense the predator. So if I'm trusting in the Lord, I'm keeping doing the good that I'm doing. I'm going to be able to rest. I'm not going to be rattled even if the wolves are circling. (laughs) Even if the bad guys look like they're winning. Even if the bad guys are winning. The story just ain't over until God says it's over, folks. I wish I had two hours to do this. So, Verse 4 has been treated like the platinum MasterCard of the Christian life. (laughs) Just swipe it and you can have that new Mercedes that you want. You know, I always picture Monty Hall when I read this. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Like somehow if I could just get past this little delight yourself in the Lord thing, I can have whatever I want. And it is a promise. But it's a conditional promise. What's the condition? Delight yourself in the Lord. Oh, what does delight myself in the Lord mean? Does it mean I get the tingles when I hear certain Christian songs? I'll tell you what it means. It's used, actually, it's the same word, same phrase that is used over in verse 11 about enjoying more than enough peace. But when it talks about delighting yourself in the Lord, here's what it means. It means that he is your chief goal. He's not your genie in the bottle that you use to get your chief goal. He is your chief goal. 
He's your chief pleasure. And here's the sticky wicket. It means you want what he wants more than anything. Boy, Americans have gotten this really turned around, haven't we? Where God is your butler. And if you just have the right prayer or enough faith, you can get God to do whatever you want. That would not be a loving God, by the way. I can't tell you how many times I have asked God to take away stuff that I insisted on having. I tried to talk him into giving it to me, and he wouldn't give it to me, so I did it myself and I blamed it on him. And then later I just thought, what was I thinking? Delight yourself, he will give you the desires of your heart. Make him your chief reward, your chief pleasure. Now, interestingly, there's a very colorful word in here. It's the verb give, because it has two meanings. It can either mean to grant the desires of your heart, or as the Amplified Bible says, the the secret petitions of your heart. I love that, because most everybody my whole life has thought I was weird, that I'm an enigma of some kind, and God knows me inside out. He knows the secret petitions of my heart. So this word give can mean either, I don't think I wrote the Greek word down, sorry, the Hebrew word. It can mean either to grant, or it can also mean to place. And both would fit here, but it's a word that's, whose meaning is derived by its context. And I think the context of God granting the desires of your heart fits here better than God placing new desires in your heart. Although, folks, if he's our chief goal, our chief pleasure, and we want what he wants, our desires are going to change, aren't they? That's why I'm driving a Jeep instead of a Land Rover. (laughs) Do I still want another Land Rover? Oh, you bet your booty I do. I dated one for a while. I even named it. And God just said, son, you can't see as far down the road as I can. And I'll make you very happy with that Jeep. And not nearly as many people will want to steal it. He will give you the desires of your heart. In the context, I I have used this to stand on many times when the desire of my heart was, get me out of here. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, when things were just intolerable. If that's a legitimate desire of my heart and it is good for me, God is able to do it in a heartbeat. And the day before he does it, it could look like you're trapped forever. So you cannot judge the future based on what you see right now in front of your eyes. But often he has let me stew in my juice because I needed it. I would have bailed out on things that he put in my life just to give me muscles that I needed. So here's the commit your way to the Lord. I think is the, the, the word commit is one of the, I think, most important words in the Christian life. I have 50 minutes, right? I'm good. Okay. If you want the Hebrew word so you can check me out, the word is galal, G-A-L. A-L. And interestingly, it's a really colorful word. It's very similar to 1 Peter 5, 7, the word casting all your cares on him. The amplified, the Hebrew word galal means to roll off and onto someone or something else and let it rest there. Isn't that colorful? 
Just like the word cast your cares on the Lord means you're not carrying them anymore. You dump them off. Now, that ain't easy. And if it is easy on some subjects, you're doing it wrong. It har- it's hard, and it's like the word forgive, the command to forgive. You just keep doing it as often as you have to do it. If that's 2,000 times in a day, keep doing it. It's a choice, not an emotion. If you look the word commit up in a dictionary, this is the one I love. In a dictionary, the English word means to entrust something to someone else's management. I tell you, a lot of my life, people would say, now, Bob, have you committed this to the Lord? And I'd say, absolutely. But as I, Lord, I commit this to you, invisibly stapled, to what I was committing to him was a 15-page outline with handy timetables and suggestions and a few suggestions that I was pretty sure weren't even going to work, but, you know, just in case. Here, check these out. And God, on page 15, there's a handy little timetable. So then in two weeks, you'll know where you're supposed to be. That is not committing something to someone else's management, is it? So, because of the quirkiness of my male brain, I made a list of what committing something to the Lord looks like. If this is convicting to you, I'm not sorry. Because when God showed me this, I realized that all my whole Christian life, I had not really committed anything to him. I just said I did. So here's three things. Brace yourself. Committing something to the Lord what does that look like in trusting it to his management? Number one, it means I let go. Really. And that's just a lot harder than it sounds. Because you know what? The minute you say, God, I'm just letting go of this, and I mean, guess what your enemy wants to do? He wants to glue it right on the end of your nose so that it's all you can see. Have you ever said this? Lord, I commit this to you, and you had to do that like 500 times? Cool. Pretty soon you won't have to do it 500 times a day. But at least you understand that if, if you take it back, you haven't really committed it to him. Here's the one that was really convicting to me. The second thing that shows me whether I've committed something to the Lord is I don't supervise. If I've given it to his management, that means he doesn't have to give me progress reports. I can throw out my timetable. I just need to trust he is going to do the right thing at the right time, and I just I need to believe that if I've committed it to his management. And all the invisible timetables and full expectations. Mm, that's, the, that's the sticky wicket, isn't it? We give something to God, and then we have certain expectations of how he's going to fix it. I caught myself driving along one time talking to God about the biggest heartbreak in my life uh, as it was going down, and I found that for about 20 minutes I was telling him all the ways he could fix it. And then I realized how silly that was, as if I have better ideas than him, and I don't. Third thing that tells you whether you're committing something to the Lord is that you listen more than you talk to him. I'm just going to offer you a challenge. I'm not going to look at anybody because I know some of you are going through really hard things, and I've been there. I've been there when I didn't see how I could make it through another day. And God challenged me 
to spend as mu- an equal amount of time listening for his voice as I did telling him how hard it was. Because I'm incessantly tugging on his shirt sleeve saying, oh, this is hard, this is hard, this is hard, and I didn't... What if he wanted to say something to me? He did want to say something to me. I was just too busy talking. Elizabeth Elliot had a wonderful quote I love. She's in heaven now. I miss her. But when she was talking about committing things to the Lord, she says, remember that sometimes for God's will to be done, my will has to be undone. Sometimes. Sometimes God's will and my will do not coincide. God is going to do what's best, and we'll, we'll believe that, even if we don't believe it now. So commit your way to the Lord. I'm running out of time. And it's no coincidence that right after it tells us to commit to his management, our way, which is a broad word, which means either your whole life or this specific thing that you're dealing with right now. It's a really broad word. Right after that, it says, trust also. What does that mean? It means don't take it back. One of my friends on Cape Cod says, Bob, when God puts you on hold, don't hang up. Sorry, we appreciate your call, and one of our operators will be right with you, so please stay on the line. (laughs) Boy, we're so patient, aren't we? Let me tell you one of the most brilliant things God ever popped into my head, so I'm going to give him credit for it, and that is that all disappointment with God is premature. All of it. When we see what he was up to all along. This is going to be hard to believe, but it's the truth. Are God's people ever disappointed with him? Well, I would say all of them have been at some point, some more than others, but all of that disappointment was premature because the story's not over yet. You don't know what God's going to do with this horrible, unbearable thing that right now you can't figure out how you're going to be able to deal with it one more day. He'll be with you. You will be able to deal with it one more day. And when you see what it is, when we see what it is he was up to, all of us are going to be going, that was brilliant. That was so brilliant. That was the perfect thing to do. That's just something we have to take on faith. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. The phrase bring it to pass is one word in Hebrew. It's the word asah, A-S-A-H. When I was looking this up, it almost giggled because my Hebrew dictionary said that to bring it to pass, the verb asah means to accomplish or to handle. And right away, I started humming, he is able, because that's what the lyric says. He's able to accomplish what concerns me today. He's able to handle anything that comes my way. Paul said it in a different way. Didn't have music, I don't think. But Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.12, I know intimately the one that I put my trust in, and I'm convinced that he's able to keep what I have committed to him. Now to David, a lot of the Psalms had to do with vindication. 
because he was falsely accused almost his entire kingship and be even before. And the lies a lot of times look like they're winning. And some, and towards the end of his life, the most damaging things to his heart were things that his own son did. David was King Saul's best friend. As far as David was concerned, Saul viewed him as an enemy and tried to make his life miserable. David at one time had 20,000 soldiers hunting him down. You think you have enemies? You know what? They didn't win. They did not stop what God wanted to do. And ultimately, God was the one that vindicated. Here's the test of your manhood and your womanhood. Are you willing to let God vindicate you? Are you going to insist on uh, doing it yourself? Because I can tell you that uh, you can do a lot of damage trying to prove that you're right. And you know what? David wasn't good at this at the beginning. I love when you study all the, we, the Bible teachers call them the trouble and trust psalms, where David starts the whole psalm by freaking out. Typical musician, you know, just so emotional, just freaking out. But he's freaking out at least in front of God. And then he ends the psalm by going, wait a minute, wait a minute, Saul, what's wrong with you? Don't you remember all the stuff God's done before? And by the end of the psalm, he's trusting God and he's praising God. And you think, man, this guy's manic. <laughs> no, he's just real. And God says, I like that guy. There's a guy after my heart. So vindication was a big deal. David was willing to let God vindicate him, and God did. I have to tell you, here's the other bad news in this whole deal. Sometimes it takes a while. And we're not good at waiting, are we? Here's another favorite Andrew Murray quote. It's from the book Waiting on God, which I have... I've destroyed five copies of and underlined it to where you couldn't, there was nothing to read anymore. I highly recommend it. Best, one of the best transforming books in the life of faith. Here's, listen to what Andrew Murray says. This is a big one. Of all of the disciplines of the Christian life, the one that most reveals the quality of our trust in God is waiting. Do you think you're a real man or woman of faith? Watch and see what happens when you have to wait under excruciating pressure. And then you realize, no, this is hard because we don't trust God. Of course, God knows we don't trust him. That's why he's stretching us, because he wants us to help. So verse 7 in sequence says, rest in the Lord. I don't know if I'm going to get done with this. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently. I was telling my niece, the Hebrew scholar, that the Hebrew word for wait patiently is a really colorful word. It's spelled C-H-I-L. <laughs> Chill, but it's pronounced chill. But when I saw it, I just laughed right out, and I thought, maybe that's where we got that whole thing. Chill, cool your jets. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. I'll give you the Hebrew word for rest. It's the NIV. Some of the other translations say be still. Here's the Hebrew word. It's damam, D-A-M-A-M. And it means to be inwardly at rest, inwardly still. In a word, it means relax. Can we talk? 
I tell you, when I am under pressure, when there's great turmoil and things are out of control, I feel guilty if I relax. I feel less guilty if I panic. Even when I know there's not one stinking thing I can do to change it, I still feel guilty if I relax. That's twisted. And God commands us to relax. That means you can do it. It just means you may not be able to do it without his help. But can you see why he wants you to rest? Because it's connected to the whole committing thing. The whole waiting patiently. It means I'm leaving it to him. And I tell you, that takes muscles to do that. It gets easier. Good habits and bad habits are developed exactly the same way. And that's by what? Repetition. So if you've been doing it wrong for 60 some odd years, God will help you to form the new <laughs> thinking patterns. I found this, these 11 verses to be a new way to train my brain how to think. What not to do, why not to do it, what to do instead. People are constantly going to change. Circumstances are going to change. And if I'm looking to them, I'm going to be all over the map emotionally. That's why I love that it says, wait patiently, heal, chill. Wait patiently for what? Well, for that guy to change. I gotta, if I just see some sign of change, no, 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 no. Don't go there. Look at David and Saul. Saul was crazy. One minute he's telling, he's all kissy face and telling David what a good friend he is while David's you know, playing music that relaxes him. And then the next minute he's trying to kill him by pinning him to the wall with a spear. Don't look for that person to change. Look to God. That's also not easy. But it's our knee jerk reaction, isn't it? We're going to judge our ability to rest and trust God based on what we see changing. And you just can't do that because God's ways are different than ours. So look to him. Look to him. Wait for him. Do not fret even when the evil seems to be winning, even when it is winning. Because the story's not over. Your pastor, my friend and one of my favorite Bible teachers in the world, I don't know if you remember this, but you sent me just a little thing that arrived at a time when my life was the most out of control that it's ever been, and it saved my life. I would have jumped off a bridge or something if something hadn't come through and you sent me one little thing in one scripture. It's on the sun visor of my car. It's in every room of my house. It's on the bathroom mirror, and it's Job 42.2, which says God's plans cannot be sabotaged. For somebody to come in and thwart God's plans and jerk the steering wheel out of his hands, they would have to be bigger than him. So that's the reason to not... You know how it is. We're praying. We know, we know what the bad guy is going to do, and we just go, Oh, God, don't let him do it. Don't let him do it. Don't get, let him get away with it. Oh, God, I, I'm not going to look. Please. And then God doesn't stop him. And then when the guy does the bad thing and it succeeds, we think it's all over. And God says, no, I can work with this. God says, that's art supplies. I can't not, remember Romans eight twenty eight from last time. 
It is not over till God says it's over, no matter what it looks like, no matter how the bad guys think they're winning, no matter how much more powerful they are than you. It doesn't matter. They're not bigger than him. Do not fret because it only leads to harm. Verse 8 says, cease from anger, forsake wrath. Those are two degrees of the same concept. The word anger is the slow boil, the fretting. It's not going to just sit there. It's going to boil. And pretty soon it's going to want to explode, and that's what the wrath means. That's the explosion. He's just saying, you feel that boil happening, stop it. That means I can. Now, if you've gone your whole life and if you've never, ever stopped it, you're going to have to form a new habit. But guess who? God will help you if you're sincere. In fact, if you're a man, ask your wife to be your partner and help you that. If you're a guy that just went with whatever your anger said, you've probably got a wake of destruction in behind you. God can change that. He wants to. Don't fret. It only leads to evil. The Amplified Bible says it tends only to evil doing. <laughs> you just let it boil, let it build. James said it this way. He said, anger does not work the righteousness of God. Man's anger does not work the righteousness of God. So don't cave into it. Evildoers will be cut off, verse 9, but by contrast, those who wait on the Lord. And this, by the way, is not the C-H-I-L word, this word wait. I'll give you the word. It's a fun word. It's the word kava. Q-A-V-A-H, and I call it the rope word. It's one of about seven Hebrew words for waiting and hoping in the Lord. And it means to be woven together in a multi-stranded rope. So when you're waiting and hoping in the Lord under pressure, you're just weaving yourself tightly into him. (laughs) And and somebody's going to have to bust that whole rope to get you out of there. It's a very colorful word. Those who wait on the Lord shall possess the land or inherit the earth. Verse 10 is just David's experience of looking at Saul and Ahithophel and Absalom, the guys that tried to shut him down. He said, look around. You know, one time I thought they blotted out the sun, but he said, you know what? I'm still here. They're gone. That happened to me. This guy that I thought was more powerful than God, no, you can't find him anymore. His words don't work anymore. And now I'm embarrassed that I gave him as much power. I let him live in my head for years. But the meek will possess the land or inherit the earth. To the Hebrew mind, that phrase would mean to come into the place of security and provision and safety that God promised you. Remember, they were slaves for hundreds of years. And God said, I got a place for you. You're not going to be here forever. I got a place for you. Then they're in Babylon. And God says, don't worry, I'm going to take you back home. So whenever, in this Psalm, seven or eight times, it uses that phrase, inherit the land, inherit the earth, possess the land. It's just saying, if your posture is like this, that David said, you're going to you're going to be the one that stands in that place of safety and provision that God promised you. Yeah, the bad guys look like they're winning now. The story's not over till God says it's over. One word about the word meek. 
It means gentle in mind and humble. The Greek word, which Jesus used to describe his personality, came from breaking a wild horse to where you could ride him. He's still the same strong horse. He could still beat you to a pulp if he wants to, only now he's letting you ride him. Strength under control. So it doesn't mean you're a wimp. Me, me, me. It doesn't mean you're milk toast. It means that you're first of all submitted to God's will. One of my Greek expository dictionaries says, meekness is an attitude of the heart chiefly towards God and then towards people where I accept what God says without questioning and without disputing. Isn't that great? That's just so not me. It's getting to be me. So don't do the fretting thing. It's, it, number one, it's not necessary. The story's not over until God says it's over. Follow that sequence. Follow it all down. Walk through it till it's like putting on the whole armor of God where this just becomes your daily routine. I promise you, it will change the way you think. Let's pray. You knew we needed this, Lord, and that's why you put on my heart to teach it. It's astonishing to me how you've proven this over and over in your word. The Bible is filled with examples of it looked like the bad guys were winning, and you used it to accomplish your purposes, and you came out smelling like a rose. And the ones that trusted you were unruffled in the process. And that's what we want, Lord. We want, don't want to act like we're orphans when we have the Almighty God as our loving, powerful, heavenly Father. So bless these dear ones. Bless these words, Lord. Thank you for laying them out so clearly in sequence. I pray the Holy Spirit would bring the meanings of these words back to our remembrance when we need them because we leak. I love the way you are. I love that you would even take a bullheaded person like me and change my thinking and give me peace despite myself. So we don't want to fight you. We want to cooperate with you and enjoy that overflow and abundance of peace. So each day, Lord, tell us what you want. Whisper in our ear. Help us to shut off all the other input long enough to hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvertherock.org.